0: Hello there and welcome. This is Hugh here and you're tuned to the third episode of the Friendly Podcast, a brand new multimedia project from Ireland Yearly Meeting. I'm here to share a range of interviews with folks from both home and abroad to hear their views about being friends today. First off, this time is Dan Flynn, a member of Belgium and Luxembourg Yearly Meeting, a native of San Francisco in the USA. For the past 20 years, Dan has been doing volunteer service for Saint Frontier while leading life reflection workshops for Quakers in Europe. A Quaker since 2014, he's now based in Brussels, not far from Quaker House.
1: It's an 1898 uh, Maison de Maître, a master's house, which was designed by uh, uh, a student of Victor Horta, the great Art Nouveau architect in Brussels, who designed many of the grand 1890 uh, Art Nouveau architecture in Brussels that's imitated in Paris. And uh, it was in shambles uh, after uh, uh, World War II, and the square, some of the older buildings were cut down for big big tall apartment buildings, but some of the houses remained were restored and the Quaker house Brussels uh, was sold to British Quakers 45 years ago by a lovely French woman next door uh, and refurbished with uh, Brussels money. And now it's a classified Art Nouveau house and uh, young friends, European young friends have a habit of meeting here. And it's we've hosted up to seven young friends in this apartment when they met here, it's it's a lovely house with beautiful 1898 Art Nouveau architecture downstairs, not in our apartment on the second floor.
0: And do you think people in Brussels outside of the Quaker community are aware of the significance of Quaker House itself?
1: Oh, oh more than yeah. more than the Quaker community. It's obviously not a normal Quaker house, and it's on the uh, and. Uh, annual Art Nouveau, Art Deco tour of Brussels. So uh, one of the conditions of accepting Brussels' money to refurbish it to its former glory, at least the public rooms and its outer facade, was to allow us annual visits on Art Nouveau, Art Deco tours hosted by citizens groups and tourism groups.
0: Wow, that is amazing to think that it's stood the test of time.
1: Absolutely, it survived not only Nazi op- occupation, uh, well, German occupation, World War One, Nazi op- occupation, World War Two, and uh, yeah, and now it's surviving COVID.
0: Dan, whenever I get to see you at a yearly meeting or at an event or a gathering of some sorts, first off, it's always great to see you. But secondly, it's always great to talk to you and to hear about the pride you take in your Irish heritage. Maybe for those who don't know, you might describe it to me and how you've explored that over the years.
1: Oh, well, listen, uh, my, I'm the, uh, I'm the grandson of four migrants of, in the, in the ni- 1800s. Uh, my father was a San Francisco born son of uh, Mike Flynn and Anne Clark uh, who were born in Leitrim in 1854 in utter poverty. And they both were economic migrants and to the States. Mike was a, also a political migrant. There was rumor that the British army was out to get him. And the church where he was likely baptized in Leitrim was burned to the ground. But fortunately, Anne Clark's uh, parish, St. Patrick's in Mohill, County Leitrim, had records to prove that she was baptized there in uh, May 11th, 1854. And it's based on her baptism and proof of it from uh, uh, Heritage uh Leachem Heritage Center that I was able to trace my, my I'm a foreign born grandson of an Irish born person. On the other side of the coin, my mother was the daughter of two German migrants. She was born in 1899. And uh, <laughs> so I've got the German angst and I got the Irish fund. It's a wonderful combination. The Irish Cultural Center in Billinamore County Leitrim, helped immensely and they were able to find the grave of uh, Mike Flynn's parents in uh, the ancient Abbey of Tarman on Loch Allen uh, between John Shambo and Drum Kieran, uh, Drum Kieran and Drum Shambo. And uh, we were able to see this large granite stone uh, of John, John Flynn and Ellen Kelly, who uh, gave birth to eight or nine children before, during, and after the Great Famine. And
0: have you been back to the States much since you moved to Europe all those years ago?
1: It's a gorgeous place geographically. And knowing what I know now, I would have had a lo- lot, I had a lot of fun growing up there in the 40s and 50s. And I, I but the 40s and 50s are gone. And if anything, my healthy 81 years of age reinforces what all spiritual writers throughout the centuries have said, live in the here and now to experience the divine. San Francisco is a gorgeous geographical place and it's always be. Uh, yeah, my life, I grew up there in the 20, uh, 40s and 50s, uh, wound up uh, in Washington DC for 38 years and uh, then we moved here for uh, 20, 20 years ago, my wife, Kate, and I, my th- yeah, third best, longest wife.
0: So it should be said that
1: you are relatively new to friends. Uh, how did you come across them? To become a member, you just simply send an email to the clerk. And at the next b- business meeting, they, uh, which you're not part of, Well, uh, uh, you, they, they ask for volunteers to uh, visit this applicant. Uh, And so the two that visited me were the two senior members, Richard Condon, the senior member, and Ann Stone, a Californian, who's also this next. And we had two hours exploring my spiritual motivation. It said near the end, this was six years ago, near the end, Richard says, I waited 20 years before I applied for membership. What's the rush? (sighs) I'm 75 years old, Richard. And both Richard and Ann roared and... That was the end of the interview. But you know, it's I'm still I'm the actuarially the closest to death of anybody in meeting, but I'm still a newcomer because I you know the we cling, you know, we cling to our stature. And spiritual path I've followed for the past nearly half century says, let go and let God. And you know, it's all temporary. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Buddhist who brought Buddhism to France nearly 50 years ago. You know, it's, at the end of the day, just have a good belly laugh and say thank you. I was on a business meeting in York, England for another spiritual program and Kate didn't have anything to do. So she wandered after going to see a couple of theater performances in York, wonderful York. She wandered into Friar, Great, Friar Gate, quaker house on sunday morning i was still in business conference and this wonderful woman barbara window kind of mm, why would you come join oh no no oh just keep following me and got her into the meeting and it was a jesus come to meeting experience for her i mean after my conference is over she says dan i've just had the most wonderful experience of all my life and we we uh, immediately started attending here in Brussels. We had both grown up Roman Catholic, me in San Francisco, and, and uh, she in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, and totally different backgrounds. But today we're both uh, Quakers. She's heavily involved in, in, with Woodbrook. She's uh, in, the, in the extended third year of equipping for ministry course, and that's her, her bonding. And me, I got in, I've been publishing, writing and publishing small stuff for years. Um, And so I've been publishing the Belgium Luxembourg yearly meeting newsletter for five years now, more than anyone has ever done. I've said, I'm ready to be replaced and nobody's standing up. I love doing it. Uh, And as you know, whatever organization you're in whether it's business, government, Quakers or spiritual recovery programs or whatever it is, if you take initiative and do what you follow your heart, 90% of the people are going to love you and 10% are going to hate you.
0: Would it be fair to say that your affection for friends was
1: almost instantaneous? Yeah, because, well, it was 50-50. Hers was almost immediate. Mine was, oh, this is nice. These are nice people. But there was difficulty getting on their mailing list. And the, we later found out because of the chemistry in this meeting, uh, we, uh, there, there, there was a feeling, well, we don't need to do any outreach, our outreach is fine. And they weren't really doing any outreach, a little sandwich board out on the sidewalk on Sunday mornings and that was it. This house doesn't belong to the, the local Quaker meeting, which is the Brussels meeting. We, I'm a member of Belgium and Luxembourg yearly meeting, which is Ghent, Luxembourg and Brussels meetings. And, uh, but this house belonged to British Quakers who bought it for Quaker Council for European Affairs, which is doing some fantastic work. Uh, you don't have to be a Quaker to be uh, uh, hired by QCA It's gone. But they didn't, the Quakers here are wonderful people, all talented, great talent. They didn't feel any outreach was needed. Uh, and that's normal. I'm, uh, sociology has always been fascinating. The psychology of groups always been fascinating to me. And I've come to believe that we all crave certainty. We all crave community where we fully accept it, without question. And we hate being wrong. I added that third one after Trump was elected. And uh, the, what, what I saw here was certainty, the conviction, you know, convinced Quaker. Uh, what I saw here was a, com- a community <clears throat> that was slow to recognizing out- outward people. And here, here I come barging in. And, uh, and uh, Irish and Americans to me are more openly friendly than others. <laughs> I'm more Italian. My, my languages are English, French, Italian, German, and Spanish, in that order, ability. And I read spiritual stuff in all five every morning.
0: In terms for meeting for worship, how do you center down? How do you approach it?
1: I don't limit uh, my spiritual growth to any one source or practice. Uh, I don't limit my spiritual practice to centering down for meeting. Um, although I've got to tell you, the first one-hour meeting I attended here, my first ever... I was amazed how busy that brain was. Uh, what I do is I start the day centering down. I shuffle off to the kitchen, brew a fresh, fresh pot of espresso for Kate and me, bring the two cups back and we sip it. Uh, and I have a stack of books in five languages next to my bedside. And I start opening them one at a time and reading. Sometimes it takes one sentence in Italian La simple joy of The simple joy of being alive, or uh, Villegas, That was by Barbara Pozzo, an Italian physiotherapist who wrote this book, uh, "La Vita Che sei, the life you are, uh, or Villegas Jaeger, who is a favorite of mine. He's he was a German Benedictine monk who went to the Japan, uh, I believe, to study Buddhism, and he came back with a certification to be a Zen Buddhist, being a Zen Buddhist teacher. So his, his spiritual growth after that was a combination of Christian mysticism, uh, Meister Eckhart, Jacob Boom, who were ancestors to George Fox, and uh, then the uh, Zen Buddhism. And he, and he became convinced that, and with a good founding in science, he became convinced that all religion points to the same the same mountaintop, a union with the divine. We cease, we drop the words, we drop the rituals, we drop the dogmas, and we go beyond. The first book of, our, of his I read was Jenseits from God, Beyond God. And uh, he slowly takes you from we, we all start somewhere, but we are all unique, temporary, but necessary manifestations of creation. And our goal is to do whatever practices uh, we can to unite with the divine, but also to take the peace we find there back to the present. And, um, and, uh, and he says in this latest book, Evige Weisheit, Eternal Wisdom, Sophia Perennis, Aldous, Aldous Hexley, Huxley, Huxley, wrote a book, Sophia Perennis, The Eternal Wisdom. He's Evige Weisheit. He says, to achieve, to practice that, we don't fully achieve it in this life. To practice that, uh, we, we practice distilla, which is stillness. Not just silence, but stillness. Comes very cloaker, close to what Quakers suggest for meeting for worship. Uh, I, I find an openness and willingness that I don't find in many Quakers. Oh, and because many Quakers will say, we don't practice meditation. We, this is not group meditation. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's, uh, I, I participated in a Woodbrook po- course uh, online after the pandemic, um, Quakers and Buddhist, Quaker practice and Buddhist practice. And the, the, um, the uh, Woodbrook tutor was Tim Ashworth, wonderful biblical scholar, beautiful and the buddhist representatives were women from the local uh, plum village uk plum village is the name of thick not hans community in france and the plum village in uk and uh united the two practices on a weekend zoom course beautiful beautiful stuff and of course tim ashworth being a biblical scholar focused on theology and the the persons from plum village focused on practice and villages puts them together
0: do you find it hard to always live in the moment to be present all of the time
1: i'm a type a extrovert but everything takes practice there's this other spiritual program i follow we seek progress not perfection we're not saints and uh, way back you know uh kate is my lovely longest and best and third wife I I was I was trained to be a priest, not to be married, and uh, so I had to have some practice. And in between marriages and relationships, I usually went on a spiritual retreat of some kind. So just before I met Kate, and uh, in a professional conference, I was attending a uh, graduate uh, continuing education theology course. At Georgetown University in Washington D.C., taught by former Jesuits, former Jesuits, and one of was uh, gave the uh, Myers Briggs Personality Inventory. Uh, Tony, Tony Martin, I think it was nice Jesuit, former Jesuit, and he, I, I came down on the Myers Briggs Personality Inventory. The only thing that was off the scale was I was an extrovert, not an introvert, and he said, Dan, to grow spiritually, you need to spend time. Practicing introvert activities, so that's a long answer to your question. Do you find it hard to center down? Not today, but that was my first alert to who I was, uh, on according to Myers Briggs, and what I, what path my spiritual directions. That's why today, uh, I I continue to offer this workshop to anybody who wants it.
0: Before we talk about the workshop that you have developed over recent years uh we before we started recording you were telling me about your mother and i think that's a story definitely worth sharing on here can you tell me about your mom and the life that she led
1: my mom god bless her was an opera singer at the pacific opera company in san francisco in the 1920s before i was born and uh she used, to, uh, she used to sing me to sleep when I was a young lad, very young lad, Guten Nacht, which it brings goosebumps to me when I sing it. And I'd, my son secretly took an old 78 RPM with her voice, recorded in the thirties and put it on a CD and secretly said it to me for one of my birthdays. And oh God, so I still have that CD. Oh, well, she was with the Pacific Opera Company and sang in, uh, in the 1920s. Uh, she was a popular singer. And um, when I was alive, she sang uh, in the uh, Temple Emmanuel Synagogue in, um, she's not a Jewish, but in, in San Francisco. We were very, very open-minded Catholics. So. No, she was 40 years when, old when I was born. And when Dad died ten years later, she was fifty. I mean, her singing days were, she would sing a little thing now and then. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, she came to San Francisco in 1920. There's a there's a uh, there's a background story. Her name was Elizabeth Katrin Stumpf, and she and her mother and two brothers, uh, Alphonse and Bruno, and her mother Maria. Uh, They came to San Francisco in the 1920s, uh, left their father in in Montana. It was a background story. And uh, she blossomed because here she was attractive, multilingual. She had English, German, and French, and operatic voice. And she went to work for the San Francisco mayor, Jimmy Rolfe. You know, the Irish were in charge of San Francisco for many years. Uh, And... uh, she went to work for him. He later became governor. He also led the anti-mask movement in the the Spanish flu, you know. But she uh, she had a glorious life, and she married this rich Irish Catholic attorney, and they had their trip to Europe, the Grand Tour, and, you know. Um, and then they divorced, and she met and married my father, who was a grand fellow in San Francisco. You know, he was a star baseball player. For this Oakland Oaks in 1906, when he graduated from S- St. Mary's College, a, a Christian Brothers school, and I went to the Jesuit High School in San Francisco, not the Christian Brothers. After he had died, so uh, there's history of Christian Brothers and Jesuits in uh, the Irish side of our family. So,
0: so you're saying that Quakers was never really in her on her radar at all?
1: Um, well, she stayed. Very much a Catholic to hedge your bets but as she aged. Uh, but she said, You know, Dan, every religion has something to say. I think her mother was Lutheran, I think. And of course, in those days, her mother had to become, Stumpf was Catholic. And we did visit the church where he was baptized, Theodore Stumpf was baptized in, uh, in uh, Baden in 1872, um, Catholic. But uh, Maria Schwatzinger was born in Breslau, was probably Lutheran.
0: So the workshop itself then, how did it come about? How did you develop it? What, uh, what sort of themes are you looking to get across?
1: 18, 19 years ago now, I was asked by a, Bel- a Belgian college professor, based on my human resources experience, to develop a workshop for students on career ideas. And it became career management. And I went on to do it. Um, Many, many times at Belgian college universities, then three, two, twice for the Quaker Council for European Union, European Union staff. uh, uh, Quaker Council for European Affairs staff. uh, Three times for Doctors Without Borders, headquarters staff here in Brussels, and once for NGO professionals here in Brussels, here at Quaker House. And... uh, so I took the spiritual principles of Quake for of, uh, uh, Quake uh, career management out. I didn't call them spiritual principles in career management, they were just suggestions. But I, I abstracted in them and, and developed life reflections based on them. And I started offered them for the first time at European and young, uh, Middle East Young Friends in Bonn at their all age gathering about six years ago. Um, the six questions are, the first, I establish confidentiality in the room. There has to be hundred percent confidentiality according to the Chatham House rule, who you see here, what they say here, let us stay here. To establish trust so that everyone who will be, feel safe, because there's four values to this workshop. The value is you, you're asked a question, you're given time to reflect. And you know, in a community, a closed community where others are doing the same thing. And like a Quaker meeting, it strengthens everybody's silence. That's the first value. Second value is you write it down. And see, you write down your intuitions. Intuitions are important here. Spontaneous intuitions are most neglected ability. And intuitions are unplanned thoughts. And most of us don't develop that. Inventors have it. Star athletes have it. Artists, performing artists, have it. Painters and sculptors have it. To so the but int, growing our intuition, Spond, lit your your heart. And then the third thing is to share that with others in the room. That's where confidentiality is important. And the fourth thing, most important thing, is to listen to others. Okay. So here are this here are the four uh, seven questions. First question. Take two or three minutes minutes to write down, reflect and write down the answer to this question. Who am I? And answers to reactions to that. I've never asked myself that question. I don't know. <laughs> okay, so second question. What do I like to do? And then I joke that you're willing to express in public. <laughs> and that, that, is, that is always a, the easiest question for people to answer. Third question, which is difficult for many people. What do I do well? Oh, I don't want to brag. Yes, brag. No holds, all of these questions should be, what are the, don't think. Stop thinking and start intuiting. Write down the first thing that comes to your mind. Fourth thing, what would I like to do better? I was trained to interview people over 50 years ago college students uh 14 college students in a day 25 minutes bing 25 minutes and uh, you never ask what did you do wrong in school no you never you ask this what would i like to do better but then the next question which usually brings the aha by this time people are relaxed um, because each time we do a question, we go through all four routines. Reflect, write it down, share, and listen. So we don't do a second question until we've gone through the first. So this next question is, by this time everybody's into it, they trust, and this is the aha question. What would I like to learn about to try? And I usually add that I've never tried before. I don't have it in this book, but I usually, what would I like to learn about to try that I've never? Open up your imagination. Here's imagination. Uh, The Italian wizards that I'm reading, imagination and curiosity are the beginning of all wisdom. And it's usually the beginning of our new directions in life. You don't go on the new direction the moment you have the thought, it's the seed. The next one I skipped in the last time I did this workshop because it was the participation on all the other questions was so intense. By the time we got to this next question, people were exhausted and I I skipped it. What do I, but it sometimes brings a real laugh. What do I know with certainty that I do not like because I've already given it a complete trial? Oh, that's good, that's good. Yeah, and that, mm. and you only have to, the others I ask, list the first three things that come to your mind. Here, just list the first thing. Because uh, by the end of the time, we're, we're exhausted. Uh, and i developed that question uh, um, based on a, uh, um, those first interviews I've conducted with college students that, uh, and they, one guy said, well, I, I don't. Uh, when I asked, what would you like to do His answer, I don't want to work behind a desk. Thought, that's what I asked him what he would like to do. And the first thing he says, I don't want to work behind a desk. And I said, you must have been working behind a desk a lot. No, but I don't want to do it. <laughs> so that's why. <laughs> and then the last one, uh, I, I obviously at, take from career management. Where can I learn to look more, learn more? But that usually reveals what people are doing if they are, haven't already revealed it in the other question, what people are already doing in their, in their uh, life's journey. Where can I learn learn more? And then I go in, push it right back to them, choosing motivation uh, that helps you reach what you want. This is all about what you want. And as I've learned in my spiritual path is, desire got me in a whole lot of trouble before I had... Before I had poison uh, called alcohol in me, and but in, in without alcohol and with emotional uh, spiritual program. Uh, it sounds like it's a great tool for resolving conflict. Dan, am I right in saying that? Or
0: are you using those types of situations where you could try and release tension or try to get to, to the root of a problem?
1: I do you view I, it like that? I appreciate people who can resolve conflict. And I can tell you right now, our meeting has had conflict ever uh, for many years. And finally, uh, uh, a, a new, a new fellow who was asked, a follow, no, a long-term member was asked to be assistant clerk. He says, I will serve as assistant clerk if you take steps now to end conflict that's been going on too long. And, uh, and hire qualified outside conflict resolvers. And we have hired two uh, and are paying for uh, reconciliation advi- professional reconciliation advisors who are British Quakers. Uh, another spiritual program I belong to is when I can't do it, I seek, uh, as William James said yes. in his marvelous book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, I seek higher powers. Any, anybody but me. Right. Nice. So, uh, and uh, I do service in a, in a in a international group today called Inter- Initiatives of Change, started by a controversial Lutheran minister out of Pennsylvania in the 1930s. It was called the Oxford Group then, and he he, uh, he believed that before we can change, it wasn't called Initiatives of Change. It went on to be called the Moral Rearmament and now it's an issue of change. And he believed that in order to change the world we need to change ourselves first. And um, his was his was his four principles were the absolutes, honesty, unselfishness, uh, uh, service and uh, uh, purity, which I don't like the word purity. Uh, but uh, that was his four absolutes, and he took that from a pri- uh, pri- prior Protestant minister in Pennsylvania named Speer, and Speer got it from uh, Jesus's teachings. And uh, in other words, we uh, all, and that's what William James was saying the same thing. He was not a theologian, he was a scientist, but he was the first American invo- invited to do the Gifford le- lectures on uh, Natural Theology at the University of Edinburgh in 1901 1902. The book Varieties of Religious Experience is a very difficult book to read at the start because he spent the first two lectures, it's 20 lectures 1901 1902, defending, making sure that he's not going to be criticized by these European British experts, you know, this uh, carpet bagging American coming over telling Europeans what to do. So he carefully positioned himself, what he wasn't talking about. And what he was talking is about, he, you can see, and he quoted George Fox a lot. He, he took quotes of people who had spirit, spiritual awakenings. In that day, he couldn't call it spiritual awakenings because the, the spiritual awakenings from the East hadn't come to the West yet. So he called it religious experience. And he quoted Paul on his donkey to Damascus. Spirit, uh, George Fox on his... He had an awakening, he saw that he had oceans of darkness and oceans of light, and it was only turning towards the light, Jesus, that he could survive. And uh, the founders of the uh, Mormons, (laughs) Uh, Agil (laughs) Moroni. And and in the conclusion of William James's The Varieties of Religious Experience, his conclusion was boiled down to basics. And he said, he knows this is very rudimentary. All mankind feels a lack, something missing. And what's the re- solution for that? All mankind looks to seek solution from higher power, higher powers, Low ca- lowercase. And some founders of spiritual recovery put HP, higher power, capital. Um, but the basic principles is, regardless of the words we use, is if I have a solution like a conflict, the first thing I do is try to use my mind and talents, but ultimately I have to let go and let God.
0: So by the sounds of Adan, Dan, you are somebody who is optimistic about the future.
1: Letting go and let God is the only way I can see us forward because I have I, I like the, uh, the prayer that was, the modern version of which was uh, created by... Uh, 20th century Protestant theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr, who is very popular, consultant to the presidents and many people. Uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, and he he was asked to write an obituary. And in the obituary, he took a prayer that is attributed to um, Marcus Aurelius, the Stoic general and emperor. And it's the serenity prayer. Grant us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change power to change the things we can and wisdom to know the difference. And that was intended to accept the death of the beloved one. And uh, the 86 years ago, our soul, a spiritual recovery program in the United States, thought that prayer fit, was perfect for its needs. It wasn't, it's a religious prayer, but it's a spiritual prayer. The program is not a religion, it's a spiritual recovery program, but it caught on. And, uh, and uh, it's used now by many people as a guiding. The program that used to change the language that Reinhold Lieber, he said, God grant us the serenity. In other words, we, we, we reach the divine in community, which the Quakers are, um, God grant us the serenity. And uh, this movement changed it to I, to help the poor, poor lost soul uh, and uh, it was changed to God grant me the serenity because it, you know, if, if a person is lost in life and feels not part of a community, they can't use that prayer, God grant us. And, uh, but the basic, eventually 15, 12, uh, 17 years after that movement uh, was started, uh, the prayer then appeared in, in the we form in its literature. So it, it appears in both forms. I, somewhere in here, I have my answer to your question. Let me, let me see if I can find, basically is um, choose positive, it works better. Life yeah. becomes what we think it is. We become who we think we are. I didn't create that. I heard it from, uh, that's why I can't find it. I'm giving myself credit for it. <laughs> the person I heard it from was uh, from Earl Nightingale a motivational speaker in the last century. He says, we become what we think about, we be- we become who we think we are. And this is at the end of an old, uh, I heard it on a 78 RPM record on my old up pictorilla. And it's called the secret of success. And he doesn't tell you the secret, but he drags you on. Socrates to Plato to Aristotle. And at the end he says, the secret of success, We become, uh, life becomes what we think it is, we become who we are. And so I add to that, think positive about yourself and others and you will become better and they will become better. So we will, you know, just as the universe has bright galaxies and black holes, we have bright light in us and dark holes in us. I choose And choice is the ultimate thing we have, Viktor Frankl said. Viktor Frankl, who survived the Nazi concentration camps, he said, they could take everything away from me except my choice of attitude. I chose positive. And in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he says, we always have choice between stimulus and our response. There's always a space of choice. Choose positive, survive. And we create we create reality by choosing positive. We choose, we create reality by choosing positive. Can't, I can't prove that, but I choose to follow experience like that. I choose to follow uh, Victor Frankl's experience. I choose to follow Billigus Jaeger's experience. Religion is following what er- people say Spirituality is following what people do. Saint Paul says, "The word killeth, the spirit lives."
0: Next up to share his views is Will Hare, who is a member of South Belfast Meeting, who has retired from leading a number of Northern Ireland government departments, where he played a key role in developing social policy.
2: I was brought up Presbyterian uh, Church there, and I suppose it was in the teens, I suppose I started to. Uh, question that and I, I suppose uh, for a long time I sort of I'd, I'd read bits about Quakers and things like that and there was uh, I started reading books and I suppose I was starting at university but then at a university in England and one day I was uh, in the bar I was Saturday the evening and um, chatting away and said oh I must you know I was chatting to some friends and said well i must um, really into the Quaker idea and the guy said, "Well, I'm a Quaker, is it?" And there's a meeting t- uh, 200 yards down, down there, down, down the road there. So we'll see you there tomorrow at uh, ten 10:30. So um, I think I was the he uh, Philip was the person of hold me over the door, uh, as it were, uh, you know, in there. So that was great. And it was a it was a it was, interesting. It was a university town, and uh, a lot of the I suspect quite a few of the Quakers there actually were. Uh, uh, academics from the Kindertransport or, you know, they had a really interesting continental background and they had long white beards and it was like having a seminar with God. Uh, so it was, they were very, it was very beautiful. Uh, meeting house was lovely, looking out into a garden. And I suppose I spent the first couple of years there. Uh, uh, there. But then when I, I came back to Ireland, I started going to South Belfast meeting and that was 40 years ago. So it was, uh, yeah, that was my first memory and i suppose that the first memories was i think rather idealistic uh thinking uh, these are saints you know these are wonderful these people are incredible uh oh, their integrity and their you know i was overawed in some ways um and uh i think it, i think there's a slight you know when you start coming to break a meeting you're, you're very and i was really interested in the readings and, and trying to understand it and it's quite trying to get a hold of it that took a bit of time but I think I was in awe uh, at the beginning, and I think it was only gradually then, you know, do you start learning the human science? <laughs> that there's, none of us are saints, we're just all human beings uh, trying our best. Uh, and uh, it took a bit of time to get there, but it was it was a very powerful uh, sort of early experience. Um, and then coming back, I suppose, to, to South Belfast, I mean, you you're the people like the Dennis Barrett's of this world who were heavily involved in the peace process and activities. A lot of people like that. Um, and uh, uh, Mark McNeil, for example, who had worked after the war- Second World War with dis- displaced people in Europe, and you know, had and then worked in Woodbrook. You'd got these very that these were very, I was they were really impressive characters. And they, they spoke with great great depth. So I suppose was it was a very powerful early experience.
0: By the sounds of it, it was almost instantaneous. Your your love for friends, or your your draw to it? Yeah,
2: I, I think I had a very strong. I mean, I was very interested in the background. I knew quite about the, the the background. I suppose I was very taken by it. I mean, I, and and the I suppose the peace testimony, and particularly their stance in in the troubles, was a really important bit of me. So I, I very quickly I kind of felt very, I was very very involved. Though so in fact it was you know I, I was ten years an tender before I i decided to become a member, but. Uh, I just, I just, just want, I, I wasn't, I, I think I'd always intended to become a member, but, um, uh, always had that as an aspiration, but you know, I didn't rush it. Um, and I suppose the other bit that, that struck me was important, I mean, I, I suppose I'm, I am personally, I deal with a lot of doubt about faith. I wouldn't say that, you know, it's one where I have a lot of doubt and a lot of skepticism and but you know skepticism on how much you can know anything and how much you can believe in the sort of classic Irish church way I I think and I suppose the the big one of the big elements of of Quakerism for me was the fact that I felt I could always um you weren't going to be kicked out if you've got doubts in fact you know it was a place for seekers as opposed to necessarily those people who had found you know and I thought that was a very powerful thing and I suppose meeting the I think I, early friends, the, the friends I met early on my time I gave me that reassurance. And I think I, I, I therefore felt it was a, a it wasn't a, a rigid environment you're coming into, but it was a, a safe home, as it were, for your ideas, where you could bounce ideas, you could think things through without feeling trapped.
0: Have you noticed much change in South Belfast meeting over the years?
2: Well, I suppose <laughs> I suppose I've changed over forty years. I mean, we all get older, and we all get you know in that sense. And yeah, and I suppose you know South Belfast meeting is one. It's one of the meetings which um, uh, we we get a lot of people coming and attending. It's 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 gone through gro- growth phases and times have slowed down and then growth phases again. What I suppose uh, South Belfast, I suppose, would have been seen in the north very much as a very liberal or you know very much. Uh, uh, of a sort of of a non I mean some people would have seen it as sort of a counterpose to a more evangelical position what I think is interesting is I think that well there still is a strong element of that in South Belfast and the way it thinks actually South Belfast there's also a lot of people very Christocentric or very much in that as well and it's actually quite a broad it's a broad meeting in that sense and it's not of the way I mean it would be uh, it, it would be Quite, um, There's quite a lot of people who read a lot and will speak quite quite philosophical and rational points of view, but there's a lot of people who are also very grounded too. Um, and it has changed, a lot of people have come and gone in that time, and as always, as all meetings do, and I think that's a, a healthy sign of any meeting, that it, it should be constantly on the move. Um, Some of what was interesting, I suppose, South Belfast was started about, about 20 years before I arrived. And I suppose over time, the majority, you know, with age, they, 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 they've they died and new people have come in. So you've got a slight change from the original founders versus the new new generation. That, that, that's been a rich, enriching experience.
0: Do you think there's much difference between somebody who is born into being a Quaker as opposed to somebody who finds it later in life?
2: Well, it varies. I think it, the answer is, I mean, I think it, 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 it can. I mean, clearly... Somebody brought up in Gregorism knows a lot of, you know, will have by osmosis, as it were, got a lot of the language and some of the issues there. But I've also found a lot of people who were brought up in that tradition who also slowly envy the position of the of the person who comes, by convincement, who's actually had to think it through themselves. And then of course, I think there's quite a lot of friends who, like many people, will start off in their teens and the child, but then we'll probably go off for 10 years. And we'll, not, you know, we'll be loosely connected, but maybe it's later on that they come back. We are unique as a little, as a church, in as much as not only we have got a few people who are born into it, but we are unique as much as, or not, absolutely unique. We, are, we are one that attracts a lot of people who will come later in life. And of course, they bring incredible richness with them, great diversity of experience and language and um, proof. But we have that richness in, the, in that aspect. And I think the, the exciting thing is, is that openness and dialogue and listening to each other.
0: I've only heard anecdotally purely just because of my age, because I wasn't around when when they were happening. But Belfast during the Troubles must have been a very difficult period. It was difficult. Um, in a sense of, you know,
2: we had to adapt our lives to it. But, you know, as in many sort of people who, situation where people lived on the strain, actually there are good parts of it too. I mean, there were, there was a, there was a dark humor about, you know, I mean, we, we kind of, you know, strange elements. We, we psychologically adjusted to it. And what was the one, the really interesting thing was in South Belfast, for example, a lot of Quakers, were involved personally um, in doing a lot of peace work, various activities right across, or were were or for people, you know, who were working in jobs which were dealing with, you know, whether it was education or social services or government, who were dealing with the impact of the trouble and were trying their best through their jobs to, to kind of ameliorate the trouble. But actually, in in the meeting, we rarely talked about the troubles. We talked about, you know, it's a very strange thing reflecting. I always, it's almost the end of the troubles. I suddenly reflect, we never really, you know, we could have had a seminar about it and lots of people would have a lot of, we could have had a really big discussion or we could have had a lot of, I mean, people did minister, of course, and tragedies happened and things like that. But actually, in a certain sense, it was held as a spiritual space where we lived our lives in a certain sense, as in, as normally as we could and i want to reflect it It was it was probably a way we dealt with the the pressure i sometimes think we had we survived by having now we always we listened we were we were absolute junkies on listening to the news we learned to listen to the news at seven o'clock eight o'clock we used the news all the time and you are using that to check whether there's anything happened you need to know or had anything happened to any of your anybody you knew or any of your family But the strange thing is when you would listen to the news and realize that actually you were not affected or people you loved were not affected, you had an ability to cut yourself off from that. And you had to do that as a way of dealing with it. So um, I say reflection, it was a strange thing. It wasn't wasn't that people weren't heavily involved in doing things in relation to to, to the peace process. And, you know, the peace people and all those things. Peter McLaughlin was in, 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 uh, the peace people was very much in, in South Belfast Me, Many people were spending the Quaker service. A lot of South Belfast friends, like as many friends, were heavily involved in those sort of things. Right? There's in the prisons or things there. So it, it wasn't about language, but actually we focused, we tried to be a community like any other community of, of Quakers.
0: Do you think your experience of that time would have been very different had you not been involved with, with Quakers?
2: Uh, yes, I mean, I suppose <laughs> it's only, it, it had an impact in that sense. I mean, there, there, are, there are a lot of other groups that so the Coramila community, for example. And my sister and, and brother-in-law were heavily involved in that. They weren't Quaker, um, and that's what they used to do. So I think people found different ways of, of dealing with them. So, some people went to churches which were across, you know, which uh, had strong connections with across the community The, the, the community divide. So, uh, you know, I'm not saying there's... I certainly found enrichment with being Quakers, but I don't think it was the only way. It wasn't, you know, it, was, it, was, it, it, it it worked for me, but many other people found other ways of doing it.
0: So, Will, you're a very accomplished assistant clerk. <laughs> hmm.
2: <laughs> I'm sure about that. I spend my time drafting minutes at work, so I'm used to minutes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you've done it for such a long time, a prolonged period of time, if I'm allowed yeah. to say that. Is there anything that you appreciate about the business method that we have within the yearly meeting?
2: I think it is a great method to listen, of ensuring that we do listen to each other and we listen deeply and we reflect as we do it. We try and take the seriousness of discerning in that process and trying to connect it to our spiritual side. Um, now, that sometimes works really well. Um we do occasionally. Um, we swallow camels and we we choke on gnats. You know, sometimes you know we get uh, small issues can can sometimes cause us problems. While other big issues we can charge through very quickly to, to surprise and maybe sometimes without as much reflection as perhaps we should. Um, so I mean, there's, there's strength. that being said. I mean, one thing I'd reflect. Uh, um, because our Yearly Meeting is small, you know, I think oh, there's 500 active members really when you come down to, you know, you come down to 500, or oh, there's, you know, there's a certain number of people who are really ground and you you get to know them and you, you, you know, uh, and, and you meet them over time and and you get to like them and have, you know, you chat over coffees and at the Yearly Meetings Committee or, or, or at the Yearly Meeting itself. So it's good that way. And, there, you know, and there's, there's some, sp- very strong families and connections that people know each other and some people are related so there's a reasonably i think a strong level of trust we therefore can be quite informal there's enough trust that actually we can do a lot of understanding and move things through reasonably well without too much bureaucracy and partly the size of us thing is small and we don't have we don't have lots of staff we don't have you know we've got very small staffing so it's not as though we've got big. Uh, capacity to fall back on. For that reason, I think we can sometimes informally and with sense and you know weighty friends in the process, we can get through some things quite reasonably well. Um I say sometimes we don't do the one would like to maybe sometimes reflect on things, maybe do things in a more structured way at times, deeper way to plan slightly more deeply, to think ahead a bit more. Uh, But actually For the size of us I think generally we get through the business okay some processes um but there's some areas that have been really difficult clearly I mean the classic you know sometimes we we have found some issues really difficult to do
0: are there any changes that have happened within the early meeting over the years that stand out to you as being quite poignant or significant
2: well I mean it's, it's it's not you know there's not any one sort of lightning big Kind of massive change I do think um I mean I think we have over the time we I mean there was obviously there was a lot of debate I think there was a time when about uh the book of discipline that the time we took to actually get that re re done on the complexities we had around that Required a depth of debate, and it was a difficult one. It took a long time to get through that one. But in doing that, I think we did get some levels of understanding across the the yearly the meet, the meeting. And I think then, I suppose, I've certainly seen the last four or five years. I think we are getting, partly because, you know, we're all, partly because we're being regulated by charity regulators. So we're all having to kind of slightly, and it shouldn't be a problem, because actually our own governments, governance systems are, are reasonably good in this sense so it's not a big problem but it actually does make us we're gradually getting slightly more structured and sensible when seeing wood for the trees in how we're doing it we're working through slightly th- through issues a bit more clearly so I do see a slightly a slight simplification of the process a slightly more open process now I think we've still got a journey to go there because we do rely on a lot of people doing a lot of work to keep the whole structure going and I suppose I'm slightly concerned of you know that depends on willing volunteers and how many people are willing to do that, and that's quite a challenge because we've got so many different levels and processes. That we're quite whether we do need to think look at where our structure slightly or simplify some process. I don't know. I mean, one of the I mean one of the great things, for example, COVID brought us was Zoom. I <laughs> um, do I think it's a great you know in some ways I would think. Uh, if any denomination Zoom was made for, it was made for Quakers, wasn't it? I mean, you actually, it's not perfect for worship, uh, for um, found it very difficult, but actually probably in comparison to other denominations actually it works, it can work well. And suddenly we've been able to connect across and do things. Well, at the same time, you know, Yelling Meetings Committee has been able to organize ourselves very quickly and get that structured through Zoom. And, you know, and I, you know, for yourself, you know, it's great, Jones. one could visit Cork and you could visit Limerick, and you could, you know, go to other meetings and you could still build. And I think there's so many things like that. We can do training, we can do other things together. So I think actually we're now at an interesting period of reflection. I think we can start doing certain things together in a different way at the same time as hopefully we'll get back to some more face to face stuff, because that's really important too as well.
0: Just on a more personal level, um, how do you find that spiritual space?
2: The main thing I do is by reading. I mean, I read a range of historical and sort of theological and other things over time. I mean, not in a very structured way, but I'm, re- I'm always reading about these things. And I think that's the basis on which I do. And I, I, now I'm re- you know, retired. I do a lot of walking in the countryside, as it were. Uh, like many of us do, I've done over the last 10 years, and I suppose that's the time when I do my reflection and other issues, but I'm not particularly good at sort of, you know, setting time aside in the morning or in the evening to come kind of to do a structured way. I'm, I'm afraid I'm not, I'm probably too moody to, or just influenced without, you know, like, or, I mean, having spent a career with a diary, doing everything, you know, in our meetings, etc. I expect I'm you know, when I'm at home, I, I prefer not to be too too confined.
0: Just before we finish, what do you think makes Irish Quakers unique? I mean, I think we one of the size of the, the meeting is of the
2: yearly meeting is, is a, as I say, it's one of those ones where actually you can know the meeting, the yearly meeting, the people are, At one level, one, there's good connections, and that that, that that's true and the culture that comes from that trust and understanding. But on the other hand, you know, here's a yearly meeting, which is in two jurisdictions, people with somewhat diverse, some diversity in it. I mean, I, there still is some of that, though I, I, I must admit, I mean it worries me. I think our evangelical friends are getting, the numbers are getting slightly smaller than they were in the past. Um, and that we're losing because I think that some of them are, you know, some some of their families are younger people are moving on elsewhere or some of them have. I think we, we're, there's danger of us losing some of that. There's a diversity in that process. So I say there's a unity at a certain level, and yet there's diversity uh, at the same time and a perspective. And you, we've always been this sort of, you know, we've had this bit where we're, we're both evangelical and liberal. Right? That tradition has been uh And that's been there. Um, so, I mean, I think that is, and I mean, I think we are for, really fortunate now. now i say that there's weaknesses comes that we say we're not as well organized we don't write you know we haven't you know we haven't maybe some things we are slower on um uh maybe we don't have a you know some of the stuff are slightly cumbersome um uh we always have to challenge that we should be like everyone we should always, we should be doing more, we should have more impact, we should be living our lives with deeper integrity and different issues and that's, we all face that really deep challenge all the time. Um, but, um, you know, I, that being said, I love the diversity and the people I meet and I feel very much at home with my day in meeting.
0: And do you think the pandemic has shown the importance or the relevance of Quakerism in a new light?
2: Well, I think the answer, I mean, undoubtedly, I mean, we're in the mid middle of a major economic, social, technological change, right? I mean, undoubtedly we we we're seeing that we're seeing a lot of a structure and organizational society in, in big shift. Uh, and just at the same time as climate change is forcing us, you know, to, to really challenge the way how much we travel and all those sort of things. So we we're we're at a time of significant shift. But um, we have, you know. We've always actually, Quakers have always been actually really dynamic the way, you know, George Fox was brilliant at using pamphlets and publicity. And, you know, we've been great at using literature and we've used technologies at different times in a really creative way. And the fact, I think, you know, I think the fact our openness to all faiths and our openness and our style, our theology and our way we look at things, is also very engaging people. We find no difficulty in having people of such a range of views or, you know, in that, in our process, and we're very open that way. But I suppose the point is that this is the time. Yeah, we have to use this option, whatever. Um, this is our duty. I mean, that's being Quaker, means we always should be trying to live our lives in a way that meets this faith. And our faith is our lives, in our lives, And we should also, at the same time, I mean, so we should be trying without preaching and thrusting it on people's neck throats, we should be trying to to be open to let people know if they're interested to do that. And boy, can, you know, I mean, one of the great things I I talked about the fact that, um, you know, I had a friend in a bar who helped me get across the door of my first Quaker meeting because it's a very daunting thing to come into, isn't it? I mean, you know, we're a terrifying lot to come into a silent room if you aren't used to it. I mean, yeah, it's so fast. I'm sure it's other meetings. Same thing. We've had a number of people who've been starting to visit us on Zoom. Hopefully some of them will then transfer that interaction coming to the real meeting. But maybe Zoom is a nice way in for them. Um, you know, and so, um, and maybe other technologies. I, I mean, we certainly know people come to South Belfast because we, we're lucky, we're fortunate, we've got quite a strong, we've got a web, website and we refresh it and we've got things like that and people notice that and people come towards us because of that, that, that process. So, you know, it's the obvious and, and people don't read newspaper articles in that sense, they're, they're looking for a different technology. So the answer is the opportunities are great at this time uh, Quakerism arose from people try, you know, dealing with credible change and trying to get to the essence of things what was really important at a time of flux. And we're at a time of flux again, and people are still trying to find the essence of what it is to live rightly and, and, and appropriately in, in, a, in a true sense. Therefore, it is our duty to communicate that because I think we have got something which is valuable to us. Does that, does that somehow... From that answer, maybe. <laughs> I, I
0: think there's a reason why you take minutes, Well, I think there's a reason why you take minutes. <laughs> Finally, for now, we cross the water and head to Canada and say hello to Maggie Knight, a young adult friend based in British Columbia, who I first met on a visit to Canadian Yearly Meeting in North Ontario back in 2018.
3: I'm a third-generation Quaker. My grandfather is the first Quaker in my family that we know of in England. So he found friends as a young man and was a conscientious objector during World War II. So was imprisoned and worked on the land. And then my dad um, was raised Quaker and my parents had a Quaker wedding, but they weren't very involved when I was tiny and they had a fairly not Quaker divorce when I was a small child. And so I wasn't really involved with Quakers um, in a meaningful way until my teens. I had occasionally gone. The first time I went to um, Quaker meeting was actually visiting my grandfather uh, in London. And I was the kid who was, you know, seven and going, like, when does it start? What's happening? <laughs> Even though my dad tells me, he'd absolutely explain to me what was going to happen. But as a teenager, my dad encouraged me to go to um, Camp Naconis, which is uh, the only Quaker camp in Canada. It's um, just a bit north of Toronto. Um, and I felt like I had found my people. I was like, oh, these people want to have conversations about global issues that matter. It was, you know, a little bit after September 11th at the time. And so just hanging out with other, I think it was 13 when I first went, other young teenagers who cared about the world and, you know, also being with people of all genders who knew how to listen. Um, I think at the time there was a very strong kind of gender binary and like a boy and a girl talking about racial profiling in the wake of 9-11 was like not a thing that I usually got to experience. And so I felt really seen for who I was and appreciated for, for that in a way that I didn't necessarily have in my normal day-to-day life. Um, and it kind of went from there. So I got involved with Canadian Young Friends Yearly Meeting, um, Western Half Yearly Meeting, which is Western Canada. I met my partner through uh, Quaker's uh, when we were teenagers and, uh, we've now been together. It'll be two more years. We'll be, have been together half our lives. So we've moved around. I've worshiped with several different monthly meetings across Canada. And, um, the last several years, I say my, my twenties, I mostly was involved at the national level because I was moving around more, but it's lovely to be kind of full circle and back with the meeting that I spent time in, um, as kind of a preteen and teenager when I was growing up.
0: They also asked you to give the lecture at the yearly meeting a couple of years back, didn't they?
3: That's right. Yes. Yeah.
0: What was that like speaking in front of the entire yearly meeting?
3: <sighs> well, fortunately, the entire yearly meeting that actually comes is not actually that many people. So, like, I've given speeches to bigger groups in my like activist and professional life. You know, it's kind of like giving a big speech to your extended family, which is both easier because you trust that they want to like what you're saying and also harder because you care more about their opinion of you but it was quite a lovely and supportive process overall, yeah, but I was, I guess, 27, something like that, and, uh, you know, it's interesting because, of course, often the lecturers are are decades older. There is a certain interesting piece to it, and maybe people feel like this no matter how old they are, but, of course, I would say different things now five years later. You know, those things were true, and they're not drastically different for me now, but I'm, I'm sure that You know, as I get older, I'll continue to reflect on, you know, the pamphlet version and go, oh, yeah, that's that was my understanding at that time. And now, of course, I understand that thing completely differently. So I think of it as a a snapshot of my understanding at that moment in time. But I talked about continuing revelation and also my own journey with what I would call workaholism and sort of the overwork that is common in millennial activists and uh, all those things.
0: Just in terms of the young friends community, are they fairly spread out across the country? So you're in BC, are many more in BC or they would be more in Ontario or are they out in Quebec or across in Ottawa? Are they fairly spread out?
3: It's a big mix. And I think it's actually hard for us to keep good track sometimes because the way that we keep track of our numbers is through monthly meetings. And we know that often young friends don't necessarily feel a huge connection in their monthly meeting, either because they're moving around for school and jobs or because there isn't a critical mass of younger folks. And so while they appreciate friends of all generations, often we've found that gatherings are a more important point of celebration and community. And so um, Western half yearly meeting, which is basically Manitoba to British Columbia, meets once in the, in the spring in British Columbia, and then once in the fall, alternating between Alberta and Saskatchewan. And um, the spring meeting in BC, for example, always has, or typically has a large contingent of youth, all the way from like little toddlers running around on the grass up to teens. And that was certainly a formative community for me. And likewise, at yearly meeting, it depends year to year, because sometimes depending where it is, it can be more expensive for young friends to travel and sometimes getting a whole week off in the middle of the summer um is not the easiest depending what you're if you have a summer job or or if you're just don't have a lot of vacation time, etc. But I say gatherings are kind of lifeblood for young friends here in Canada. And um Maconus has certainly been part of that. Mostly for Ontario friends, but for sure for other people as well, including including me.
0: So you've been busy on committees yeah. over the years, that's fair to say. Yes. What do you get out of it? What do you actually get out of being on a committee? Most people try and get away from that.
3: Oh, I know, glutton for punishment. I mean, I think it's true to say that a big part of why I'm a Quaker is because when it's done really well, like Quaker, Quaker business at its best is transformative. I'm somebody who in the rest of my life, I've been an activist, I've been an organizer, I've been a nonprofit professional, whatever you want to call that, um, where I care about uh, building better things and, and, um, and getting things done and getting things done in a way that is grounded in integrity and and values that that matter to me. And so at its best, um, Quaker Meeting for Worship for Business is so can be transcendent and transformative and I think is a model for broader society in terms of, of how you can make collective decisions that seek the right way forward that's not based on any one person's ego or any one person's attachments to what should happen so I'm, I'm there for it for those moments and uh, seem to be willing to go through a lot of sessions that aren't necessarily quite as grounded and transcendent in order to get there but i think it comes down to it, i like getting things done and um, i have some skills that i feel are useful and uh yeah and i like the people like i my, i'm currently a uh, clerk of a national committee and it's just really fun because the people are great, and we enjoy each other, and we joke around, and um, you know, it's community as well as making
0: things happen. But just thinking about the future of of yearly meeting in just sort of on a bigger scale, is there is there a way to make it more efficient, or to you know make it more compact? Looking ahead, you know, to you know our generation where we're going to be making decisions for for the wider group of Quakers.
3: I mean, I certainly hope so. Um, I wouldn't say that our forte is letting go of structure. Um, and so I think, you know, that's an example of where young friends set a great example. And like, I don't mean me, I mean other young friends, um, being willing to have fellow years, being willing to dissolve structures that aren't serving. It sometimes feels like we spend a lot of energy studying our structures and attempting to restructure. And not as much energy just doing the things that we feel led to do that will really nurture, nurture us. So yeah, I mean, I certainly hope that we'll all get easier in time. And you know, I I think too that we sometimes lament like, oh, we don't have enough young people and all of that. But I think I don't know if we will grow, but I think Quakerism has an incredible potential to grow. I think we have a lot to offer, you know, this these next few decades for a practice that is grounded in you know, values, you can call them progressive values or, you know, values of justice and equity that are incredibly important to to people of many generations, but including our age and, and the Zoomers coming up behind us. And we offer a practice that helps to ground in something deeper, something that helps you to get rid of the anxiety and the distraction that is so prevalent in anxiety sometimes. And so, you know, I think there's Lots of potential, and I don't know where it will go, but I, I refuse to feel that my excitement isn't warranted.
0: Can you tell me more about the work that you're involved with these days?
3: My professional work, I had been working at the BC Civil Liberties Association, but essentially working with a bunch of uh, lawyers who uh, sue the government to protect human rights and civil liberties. So, for example, working on things like trying to end indefinite solitary confinement in Canadian prisons. Apparently, Quakers actually invented solitary confinement once upon a time as a means to like quietly reflect on your wrongdoing as an alternative to corporal punishment. But then our government isolated people for literally years at a time, um, which we think is unjust. So, you know, my work has been more in the running the organization side of things. So trying to look after the people who do that work, money, stuff, budgets, HR, tech, all those things. Um, I haven't been able to go back to that because of the pandemic and what that's meant for um, childcare, care, et cetera. So um, I have moved to where I'm now consulting independently part time while also looking after my little one part time. But I'm doing the similar type of things, working with people um, around restructuring their budgets, working with folks around kind of developing leadership and management skills in their specific niche area, HR policies, all those kinds of like the nuts and bolts that kind of like Quaker business maybe I am very excited about and nerdy about and it's not for everybody. Um, but I think Quaker practice for sure of course has informed my desire to do that work and how I do it even though you know much of the secular world is not necessarily welcoming of like explicit religious practice in the workplace for obvious reasons. But I, I do remember like when we had our, our, we had a Quaker wedding uh, in 2015, and I did have a bunch of like colleagues and like activist friends, et cetera, who came. And some of them, you know, looked at us afterwards and were like, oh, I get this. Like you do this, you do this in meetings. You like hold silence in moments and you facilitate things. And this like, this, this, this makes sense to me. So I think it's, of course, it's woven in how I am in the world. And it helps me balance out, I think, some natural tendencies of mine that are quite like type A and hyper-organized and, as you can tell, highly talkative. And so the fact that I am also comfortable with silence and able to take a step back and and reconsider and sit with sit with lack of clarity, sit with unknowing, I think is tremendously helpful to me in, in the work I try to do in the world.
0: Can I just ask then about meeting in general? Are you somebody who would go I guess online these days, but pre-pandemic times, would you be going centered? Are you already centered when you're, when you're driving to the meeting house? Are you, are you knitting? Are you sitting in the same, the same chair? Are you reading a book? How do you approach it?
3: For years, I went to meeting completely uncentered and probably holding a pit of anxiety in my stomach about all the things I was supposed to be doing. Um, and so for a long time, I would go with a journal and I'd spend probably the first 20 plus minutes just brain dumping all those things out of my brain um, so that I didn't need to think about them in the same way. Um, So I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm naturally quote unquote good at Quaker worship. Like it doesn't necessarily come easily to me, but when I'm in the practice of the practice, then it gets easier and is hugely helpful. I've gone through periods of more regular attendance. I've often lived places where, you know, it was like almost an hour to get to meeting by transit and so that is not always deeply appealing on a sunday morning if that's the only day that you get to sleep in yeah i think it changes over time i do find that i think that's part of why gatherings are so helpful for me is it's it's so immersive that i am present i'm not pulled as pulled away by the other concerns of of the week um and it helps me just like let go of all those other things that will be waiting for me at the end of the gathering and give myself more space for a bit.
0: Do you find a silent meeting completely just as helpful as somewhere you have heard ministry?
3: That's a good question. Sometimes I might find a whole silent meeting hard, but that might be what I need to do that morning. I do often really enjoy spoken ministry, and but I also embrace the practice of listening to it carefully. And then if it doesn't speak to me, letting it go and going back to whatever it was that I was sitting with before. But there have absolutely been some very powerful spoken ministry and meetings that I've been in and I I treasured that
0: yeah are there any issues of note that Canadian yearly meeting are discerning at the moment about
3: oh always (laughs) um yeah I mean I'd say you know what structure will best serve us what's financially viable how do we maintain close ties across such big distances every now and again people talk about should we split into two yearly meetings so that we you know can reduce the geographic spread a bit but half of all Quakers in Canada are in Ontario so that shifts things a little bit so we're currently in another round of trying to figure out what needs to be staffed by paid staff and what can be done by volunteers all those things I think that's important to my brain is good at that work and I also don't find it as meaningful as some of the other work that's we sometimes do.
0: Am I right in saying that the yearly meeting office is based in Ottawa?
3: That's correct.
0: Yeah. So, so the
3: yearly meeting is based in Ottawa, which is, as I'm sure your listeners know, the capital of Canada. Um, the biggest meeting is in Toronto, which is also the biggest city in Canada. And then there are other large meetings, particularly in Vancouver and Victoria out here on the coast. There's a pretty big meeting in Montreal and Some other bigger ones elsewhere in Ontario, Hamilton, that's meeting. I mean, big is all relative. Like here we'd probably say like a 35 person meeting because it's not as small as like the four person meeting. But, uh, you know, there are Quakers in every province um, across Canada. I'm not sure we have Quakers in every territory that we know of. Canada has 10 provinces and three territories. But uh, as always, we're seeking a way forward. And I think that the pandemic is giving us space to do things differently in some ways while, of course, constraining our options in ways that we don't enjoy.
0: I'm just wondering, do you think having the the office in uh, in Ottawa makes a difference to whether it could be in Toronto or Victoria or Montreal? Like, Has that always been the way? Has that been like that for a while? Did it move or is that just sort of a decision that was made?
3: It's a good question. I don't know the history of where the office has been located
0: just even more from a geographical point of view is this you know is it best served being on the east coast
3: i think it works fine for it to be in ottawa um we currently have our um our CYM secretary one of our full-time staff positions is actually based in victoria and just works from here you know i think that there's a certain amount of that we do have some physical operations and like where people mail their donations and kind of some, some core infrastructure uh in ottawa but that's pretty classic in canada that you'd have like a head office in Ottawa, but of course there are other people doing other things elsewhere. Those of us who don't live in Ontario do like to give Ontario a hard time sometimes. For We have to remind them that they're not actually the center of the country. Uh, there might be the geographic population center more so but winnipeg is like the geographic middle east to west southerners in canada tend to not give enough attention to the north which is massive but not very populated so yes of course there are like geographic i would even say like rivalries or tensions like within quakers but like certainly within the canadian psyche we are like a ridiculous nation that is way too many different regions all bound together and it's like a ridiculous colonial project that decided that this should all be one country and of course you know canadianly meeting is predominantly anglophone um, we're not a fully functioning bilingual meeting even though canada nominally is a bilingual french english country and there are a bunch of quakers in quebec some of whom have actually come from Africa and our francophone and are from a different tradition of Quakers and so there are friends churches now in the, that tradition in Quebec as well and so I know Montreal friends have there's been good intervisitation and we've had you know a central Peter Gardner lecture from that tradition etc. But I you know I wouldn't say that we think we're about to become a functionally bilingual um, community even though of course we do have francophones who are part of part of the community and we. Have aspirations to be welcoming. And
0: Neconus is in Ontario too, right? So I guess is there scope for having more than just the one retreat center, if you want to call it that?
3: Yeah, I think it really depends. You know, I think a lot of it's financial too. Is that you know, land costs a lot. You need money, and some of the money that sustains continually meeting is from. Trusts that were set up in Ontario and are designed to go to folks in Ontario. Um, And so there's both a big population base and a resource base in Ontario that makes it different from what we would do if, say, you know, Western Half Yearly Meeting, if we just wouldn't do a bunch of things that Canadian Meeting does, probably. But then you get the questions about, well, who would maintain like our book of discipline and who would do, you know, who would represent us nationally to all these bodies? Would we do that? Would we not do that? etc so out here on the west coast i think we tend to do less business to some degree but you know those are broad stroke stereotypes we like to joke about the ontario quakers being like business quakers but uh we do it too
0: i just going back to Nikonis, i i know that it's beautiful you know that it's beautiful but for those who possibly don't know can you describe it to me and what you love about it
3: Yeah, so Nakanas is on Sturgeon Bay, which is off Georgian Bay, which is north of Toronto, and it's sort of like cottage country. Um, It's very beautiful in a sort of eastern North America woodlands, rocks, and trees down to a lake kind of way, which is a different way than how it's beautiful out here on the west coast with like massive mountains, evergreens, and ocean. It's very peaceful. And I think you can kind of feel that people have been gathering there for decades. I think it dates from the 30s, little outhouses and a big hall for meals and a big hall for the meeting house. Although often if you're there in the summer for programming, meeting for worship is done on this um, lovely banked hill that overlooks kind of a clearing uh, through the trees down to the lake and you worship on the hill together, um, looking at the lake and that's Beautiful. Um, in the summer in Ontario, it's often hot and a bit muggy, so it's warm, kind of well after dark, and you get kind of a slow, cool breeze um, that just sort of ripples the tree leaves a little bit. Um, but it's a it's a very special place that's hard to fully describe. But I think for me, it was formative because I was in my teens at those times where every every experience is so intense, and I made these friends that you know, continue to matter to me uh, now. And there is, I think, you know, it's for us at such an age, like teens or who are so stereotypically cliquey, um, I think Nakana has done a great job of going beyond that and giving people space to connect as humans and outside of the stereotypes and hierarchies that exist in, you know, your typical school, for example.
0: And don't forget the song you sing after after dinner or after every meal, the announcement song.
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's important. <laughs> it doesn't really work with only one person. I know. Like it's really best to be done as a chorus and it's you have true. to like bang on the table and all, all the things. But yeah, it is ridiculous and amazing.
0: It kind of feels like it's just sort of a, a haven within a haven away from everything. It's like as if time just stops when you're there.
3: Yeah, I'll, I'll misquote the sign, but there's a sign as you enter camp that says basically like leave your cares and woes here. And then as you're leaving camp, it sort of says, like, you can pick up your hopefully diminished cares and woes as you leave. Yeah, I remember just, like, crying when you leave. And, you know, like, I'm like getting the shuttle back to the airport and I'm trying to lose it in the shuttle. And I've got my, you know, rosy glow little, like, book of people's notes, like, sort of yearbook style. And, yeah, definitely lots of big, wonderful feelings from from really relatively short experiences of camp in in the summers of my of my teens I mean I think I was a bit of an old soul like I was an overly serious teenager also some of the time but um yeah for sure the lots of camp hijinks and and silly songs and all those good things
0: in terms of your local meeting do many of them who attend live close to you
3: I'm not actually sure because I haven't lived here since I was a teenager. Of course. And so I'm still figuring out where everybody is. Um, but yeah, there are definitely other Quakers within walking distance of me. Um, and I've gone on some walks with a few folks now. You know, my hope is that we'll be able to, like from here, we could easily bike commute to meeting. be maybe like a 10-minute bike ride from our place, which is really lovely compared to Vancouver, where it was quite far from where we were.
0: How far are you from Vancouver?
3: So to get to Vancouver, well, you can fly, but that's ridiculous. It's an hour and a half on a ferry and the ferry leaves from a place that's about 40 minutes outside of town by car. So it's like two hours. By the time you get into Vancouver where you're going, it's probably like a minimum three hours by the time you add the wait time for the ferry. It's like a three and a half to four hour one way trip by car.
0: Is there anything you miss about the city?
3: I miss people. Of course I miss people. We lived you know, so I grew up here, I lived in Montreal for five years, I lived in Halifax and Nova Scotia for two years on the East Coast, um, and then we were in Vancouver for five and a half years or something like that. All those places I miss, there are good things about all of them. Um, you know, Vancouver doesn't feel far by Canadian standards, it's like just over there, it's just, just one ferry, it's no big deal. Um, so, you know, when things are opened up again, I'm sure we'll be over more able to visit with people
0: so do you feel like the the relationship between us and canadian friends is quite strong then it must be
3: i think it really varies you know the canadian american relationship on a like geopolitical level is complicated but america is so much bigger and so there are certainly tensions around that sometimes and canadians like to perceive themselves as different culturally even though we're really quite similar um and because a lot of friends who have moved here from the States, like did that to get away from the States. Um, You know, there can be just complexities around that. And I think sometimes we don't understand Quakers in America super well, because it's so much bigger and more complicated. There are so many yearly meetings, there are so many different traditions. We're like, we're just like CYM mostly. Although there are absolutely Quakers in Canada who are not part of CYM, um, that we don't really talk about that much. So I think some friends in Canada are feel deeply connected to communities like French General Conference or Pendle Hill, et cetera, um, and then others who like, don't think about American Quakers at all. So it's, it's a range. And it, of course, part of that is about money. Like the Canadian dollar has been weaker than the American dollar most of the time in the last 30 years. And so it's expensive to travel. It's expensive to attend things. And so it tends to be you know, not accessible to everybody.
0: Do you have a sense of growing out of the young friends community?
3: I think I'm lucky because I was so involved in Young Friends that I I have kind of an age cohort of people who have also transitioned in different ways. And so, you know, now I see myself as like a participant in Young Friends, but I don't want to take leadership in, in Young Friends because I think they need to set the course for younger generations of, of young friends. But I also have been around long enough that I have good Quaker friends in many generations and i really really appreciate i think particularly like having relationships with quakers who are one life stage ahead of me i'm the first of kind of my closest group of friends to have a kid and so it's definitely like being around being at gatherings and seeing quakers other quakers parenting small kids um i think gave me a sense of kind of like i can do this you know this is possible it's okay and my first time like really holding like a, a baby was at a quicker gathering when, you know, a friend who had, I don't know how old he was then, maybe like four months, six months old enough that his head was holding up on his own. And she was just like, oh, can you hold him while I go get some dessert? And I was a bit like, okay, okay. I, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, I can hold a baby. This baby is super cute. Okay. So I think getting to see the the joy in parenting and that people just kind of navigate it. And that people like people who have values that are similar to mine. I think that was all really helpful and something that I find like I have intergenerational community amongst capital F friends in a way that I don't always have to the same degree in my personal life and my professional life um, in terms of sort of people's whole lives being being shared with you in a different way. So I think I do sometimes feel that sense, and I have you know sometimes you know there'll be younger friends amongst young friends in Canada who are like asking questions or being like, Oh, we want to learn about the history of CYFOM and our various things. I'm like, Oh yeah. Cause I'm like, that's six years ago, which feels like so long to you. and doesn't feel that long to me anymore. Cause I'm getting older and sort of those moments of like, sometimes I'll offer to step in and, and sort of explain why something is the way it is. But I think I'm just more comfortable. These just being like, you know, if someone asks me, I'm happy to share people know I'm here. But also like part of the beauty of young friends is being so much more willing to reinvent yourself more frequently and to really listen and really embrace continuing revelation and and to follow that path more easily because you're not as rooted in, well, this is how this is.
0: One thing that I remember too from my visit was CYF, (laughs) uh, what is it?
3: Uh, (laughs) CYFYM. (laughs) That's the one.
0: Yeah. Very efficient. Just, you know, boom, 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 boom. This needs to be done now. And that was even without you there. You just turned up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Probably
3: because I wasn't there. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there also were some epic, like, I remember some epic young friend business meetings till like one in the morning and like tears and like all these things, not like high drama, but just like deeply felt I had my first deep experience of the business meeting with young friends before I experienced that with older friends. And in fact, I feel like I struggled to engage at the monthly meeting level because I found meeting for worship for business not as grounded in spirit as when I was with young, young adult friends.
0: That must have been quite something.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's, it's just meant to how intense your feelings are when you're a teenager um, in your early 20s and that you haven't learned to like tamp that part of yourself down in quite the same way and that you're experiencing so much that's new and so you have kind of raw emotion about it in a, in a different way. And I think there's also maybe there's this attachment to one way of doing things. Sometimes there's less ego involved. There's less tiredness because it's not like, okay, every three years this issue gets raised and every three years, like this person says this thing and the other person is cranky about it. And like, you just know it's all going to happen again. And like, that's not fun for anybody because you haven't done it before. Like it's the first time you've been 16 and like considering this issue. So it's, it's just organic and and intense in this way. Like I know what that gathered, deeply gathered sense of young friend worship feels like in my body. And I do feel like sometimes I'm able to find that in broader friends, broader CYM business. And sometimes that I get that feeling and I feel very clearly led to speak and and to give ministry. And I think having that as like a touchstone experience that my body knows certainly helps my practice because I can absolutely be prone as well to like a less grounded form of engaging in business meeting where I do feel like I have lots more to say and it's a bit more chatty and I'm like, oh my goodness, clearly if we just did X or Z thing, we'd be fine. Can we please just agree to that and move on now? Um, which is you know a temptation I'm sure many of us feel at times and it's not always uh, in the gathered spirit so we're actually listening to way open. You know, this is part of where I think Quakerism has a lot to offer the world is that, again, at our best, um, we're able to, you know, see that of God in everybody and to hear multiple truths at the same time and to hold the tension of, you know, it can be simultaneously true that somebody is white and has been systemically disadvantaged based on their gender or their sexual orientation or their socioeconomic status. And also that they still have privilege as a white person compared to a person of color. And like those things can be this like true at the same time. There's nothing at all contradictory about that. Um, But you can see some white folks getting sort of heated or feeling triggered if they're telling like in this conversation about privilege. And so I think we've gotten to a better and a deeper place with that. But I think kind of two or three years ago, That was a bit of a struggle that some young friends were just like super frustrated by it.
0: Just on that, you say that you feel that Quakers or people could learn a lot from Quakers. Do you think then just flipping that, do you think Quakers could be more active on or vocal on social and justice issues?
3: I mean, yes, always. Um, But also it's that balance of like, I don't think Quakers have to be like a corporate entity taking action, like doing the actual activism on everything because there aren't that many of us, and there are a million different issues, and sometimes being a spiritual home for a lot of people who try to help make the word, world more just in a variety of ways is important, and sometimes what those people need is not, like, another committee meeting about the statement on the thing. Um, they need, like, this, the potlucks that will make them feel happy, and, like, the children's program that will look after their kids, and, you know, all of that, so it's, it's both, both ends i do think that this is i'm saying at our best i think there are absolutely times where we suck at this stuff like we are conflict diverse we don't want to talk about it we're like we'll shuffle it off into a committee who will write a report and then we'll consider the report and then we'll have a subcommittee to, to implement the report and then it's seven years later and like who even knows what's happening anymore so you know we have our moments of being deeply useless on issues that are important but the core of the practice of being able to sit with difficult truths and to seek wisdom from them not to retaliate out of anger not to try not never to harm to try to uphold each person's humanity you know those are useful practices in this time and they're hard and I see you know like we live we've lived in the shadow here of Donald Trump as has much of the world and yeah watching how different friends tried to navigate that and and who were like full-on the like anti-Trump meme train of like deeply dehumanizing things because they're like no but he's so awful um and who will who were on that plane like he his policies are awful and also like i don't want to engage in this particular kind of like mockery and you know that particular piece is probably neither here nor there but it's, it's like those deep practices if you practice them they will often get you to good places and at the same time we have to continue to evolve because we know that you know quakers are not no at no point have we been perfect and that includes our ideologies like and our ways of being you know we have practices that will tend to privilege people who can sit around for a long time you know it's very what we call you know waspy like white white Saxon protestant it's very processy it's very meticulous about words and wordsmithing Um, and those things can be useful in many settings and also are similar to characteristics in white supremacy culture that has excluded other people who maybe don't know how to use that particular way of working. And like, that's not the only valid way of being in the world. And so, you know, it can be both those things. We have many strengths and we need to continue evolving. And, listening.
0: and that brings to an end Another episode of the Friendly Podcast If you like what you've heard Don't forget you can subscribe to our social channels And if you'd like to find out more About Quakers in Ireland You can find us online at Quakers.ie